Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Horror Weekly, the best horror sequels of all time. I am really excited about this episode, but it's also a little more complicated than the episodes we've tried in the past, so it's going to take just a bit of explaining here at the top. A few weeks ago, I got this idea and posted it to the Horror Weekly Facebook page about what's the deepest in terms of number a masterpiece movie has appeared in a horror franchise. So, like, I consider Wes Craven's New Nightmare a masterpiece. And that movie is the seventh entry in the Elm Street franchise. So, like, we all know Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives, is a masterpiece. So that's a masterpiece six movies deep into a franchise. New Nightmare is a masterpiece seven movies deep into a franchise. So is there an eighth? Is there a ninth? And I really started to wonder about it. So... Now what we're going to do on this episode is pick a couple of the best movies at each position, at second entry, third entry, etc. And we're going to take it all the way to eight. So we did ask half a million horror fans online what the best entries at three, two, and four were. And as usual on this podcast, we'll give you those results and then a couple of our own picks. And this leads me to the other reason I'm super excited about this episode, because I realized I didn't have that strong a feeling for the entries for four and beyond. I was really concerned with one, two and three for this exercise, but because I didn't want to keep asking the fans over and over separate entry questions and because I didn't have that strong a feeling for it, I'm tagging in my favorite horror podcast. It's Aaron and Hillary from Manic Movie Monday, and I asked them to help me out, and they were kind enough to do it. So later in the episode, you will hear a clip of them making their picks for some of the later positions in the sequel count. And I've heard the clip, and it's hilarious and smart. So let's get this going and pick the best sequels, starting with position two. So the best second entry in a horror franchise ever turned out to be the hardest one to pick. And it's likely because there's more of them, honestly. I mean, it's rarer and rarer the deeper into the numbers you go. How many franchises run to like, you know, 90 movies like Amityville does. And I think also possibly they're just closer to the original. So they're really mining from that original greatness that made people want to get a sequel in the first place. The later in franchises you go, the kind of weirder it can get. You end up in space or at SeaWorld or whatever. And the voting from you all here was awesome. So the winner was Aliens, but a lot of the people making the vote for Aliens were kind of putting an asterisk by it, saying, not sure if I really consider this horror. So the alternate winner is Evil Dead 2. So they both kind of won this category. And then nipping at their heels were Scream 2 and George Romero's Dawn of the Dead. Those were the top four. But there were so many movies that got hundreds and hundreds of votes and tons of support that really surprised me. The movie that I think placed the highest in the voting, higher than I expected going into it, was Hellbound Hellraiser 2. 
Timothy Robinson commented in the voting, I'm so torn between Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, Scream 2, and Evil Dead 2. These have a special place in my love of horror movies. Also, Fright Night Part 2 and Phantasm 2 and Night of the Demons 2 are special to me. I think I have a deep love of second entries in in series, lol. But you see in his comment there that he sort of tiered it, and the top tier included Hellbound, Hellraiser 2, which was happening for a lot of people. I mean, it got hundreds of votes. And I rewatched it just recently getting ready for this podcast, and man, does that movie hold up well. It's the Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors of the Hellraiser series, I think, in that it pulls off that incredibly difficult thing to do where a sequel moves a series forward, takes uh, characters you originally were aware of and makes them deeper or amplifies them somehow and and makes everything kind of weirder, but also a little more fun while keeping it scary. There was one other thing that really jumped out to me, uh, besides just the beautiful art, the shots in this thing, the incredible performance from the Julia character, played by Claire Higgins, who somehow got scarier the less weird she looked. But the thing that jumped out to me here, and now don't get mad at me, I'm going to say some forbidden words here, but... You know how everyone got super mad? Not everyone. I mean, I think Halloween ends. This is the forbidden movie I'm talking about. Um, I I've, think it's going to grow over time. I think it already has a fan base. I can tell it does from the comments on our page. But a lot of people got really mad that Michael Myers was made weaker somehow. Oh, he couldn't kill us, the one person by himself. He needed Corey to, like, tag in when they were uh, killing someone in the sewer. Like, he's stumbling around. I hate this. Michael Myers has to be this, you know, unstoppable force. Well, Pinhead gets his ass handed to him in this movie. He gets stripped of his iconic look. He seems like he's not just doing a delaying tactic for Kirsty, but also might want to be putting up a fight. And then he just gets his throat cut and laid down by Dr. Chenard. And I got to say, I just kind of didn't like it. <laughs> Kenneth Cranham, who played Chenard, did a great job before the Chenard transformation. And I think the Chenard character is really scary for a lot of people. And I grant that, like, it's a great design. But the problem is they made his weapons very specific. They're like surgical cutting tools because he's a doctor. But Pinhead's use of chains as weapons is so much more sinister to me because it's not really explained. I mean, he has nails in his head and there's chains. So like there's some like metallic tool kind of thing happening here, but it's still just off enough to really keep your mind on edge. And Chenard being like Doc Ock somehow didn't quite work for me. Although his magnificent, the way Julia pushes him into the trap to be transformed and the way he emerges with that magnificent line and to think I hesitated, that is gold. As is most of this movie and props to the creativity of creating a god, <laughs> the Leviathan or whatever that god is that Julia is worshiping in this thing. That is the weirdest god I can imagine. Like even Cthulhu makes more sense to worship than worshiping this like dangerous 
spinning <laughs> Rubik's Cube. You have to be absolutely insane <laughs> to be a follower of this thing. So all of that works. I love the movie. Other movies that got a lot more support than I think I expected going into it at the two position are Dr. Sleep got uh, more than 100 votes. Psycho 2 got a lot of love. House 2 Second Story not only got a lot of votes, but most of the votes were like, I like this better than how the first house. And Dario Argento's Inferno, which is the second movie in the Three Mothers trilogy. Now, my personal pick for the best second entry in horror history got quite a few votes, not enough to really be in the top, I don't know, I think eight, but it's got, it got some votes. It's Bride of Frankenstein from James Whale. First of all, as a very young kid, this movie actually scared me, and the original Frankenstein didn't. I loved them both, and I loved the atmosphere of the first one, but the second one actually got to me when I was young. It seemed like it was set on like an alternate Earth 2 where everyone was completely crazy. It felt to me back then that it was that whoever made this movie was a maniac. I've also always been a huge like classic literature fan, so the fact that the movie opens up with that uh, Byron and Mary Shelley kind of framing opening and just the bone rattling grimness of that final we belong dead line and the scene that's around it. It's an interesting thing to notice in the Frankenstein movies that people are plainly saying shit that's wrong all the time, like incorrect. Dr. Frankenstein is promising his wife all the time, like I can control this this scientific project. It's not going to disrupt our life. People are saying that the outcome of this effort is going to be good. Like we're going to cure death. And all it does is like wreak destruction on everybody. People are grabbing the wrong brains. But when Karloff says we belong dead, I don't, I've not met a single horror fan who thinks that's wrong. He's rendering a judgment when he says that. And that judgment is right. It's a hundred percent accurate unfortunately it's tragic and sad and the fact that elsa lanchester became an immortal horror icon with just minutes of screen time like as i'm recording this episode spirit halloween stores are starting to open up it's that wonderful time of year and i've been seeing pictures of people going into the stores and what's in the pictures the bride of frankenstein I mean, this movie is almost 90 years old, and that character, those sounds, those ghastly sounds she makes, those sharp, angular looks that James Whale is presenting as the cutaway, that heartbreaking denial scream in the creature's face, like part scream, part hiss, it's still so amazing after all these years. So between the Horror Weekly community and myself, we have Bride of Frankenstein Evil Dead 2, and Aliens as the best second entries. Now, what's the best third entry in a horror franchise? Well, it was close, but the winner in the voting was Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors. Right behind it was Halloween 3 Season of the Witch, which I know has been part of a decades-long reputational turnaround, but to see it come... This close to claiming the top spot was a little surprising to me. Behind that was Army of Darkness, then Hellraiser 3, Final Destination 3, 
Son of Frankenstein and In the Mouth of Madness as part three of John Carpenter's Apocalypse Trilogy. The two biggest surprises to me here were how much, how many votes um, Son of Frankenstein got and then also a lot of votes and support for Return of the Living Dead 3, which is not a surprise because it's a great movie. It's a surprise that it's well known enough to live up here with all these heavy hitters. My personal pick for the best third entry in horror history is Exorcist 3. Now, this troubled movie is not perfect. There's actually two versions of Exorcist 3. I like the theatrical version a little bit more, although I respect what the director's cut is trying to do. But despite its flaws, I think this movie is very, very extraordinarily special. First of all, this is a great horror movie directed by an author, and that is rare. I mean, we've got Clive Barker directing Hellraiser. We have Stephen King directing Maximum Overdrive. But for an actual legitimate writer, a true novelist, to come in and make a movie this incredible is a rare treat. William Peter Blatty, the author of The Exorcist and Legion, among many, many other things, is just a really interesting and formidable guy. And the fact that it's directed by an author is one of the reasons I think this is special. I always look for things that are standout, like what does a horror movie do better than any other movie or any other horror movie for that matter has ever done. And it's quite possible that Exorcist 3 is better at speaking scary scenes, speaking scary events at you than any other movie ever has. This movie talks evil in a way that I've never heard before or since. And given that it's made by a wordsmith, I guess that makes sense. But there are so many scenes in this movie. The, the highlight of all of them is Brad Dourif slash Jason Miller's monologues, mainly Dourif here, describing his activities as the Gemini killer. Just almost too good, almost too believable. I mean, this movie obsessed Jeffrey Dahmer and the Gainesville killer, Gainesville Ripper, I think he's called. Um, so maybe this is just a little too accurate. As a matter of fact, Dourif's monologues were so powerful, they almost kind of harmed the movie. Because Jason Miller and Brad Dourif end up playing sort of the same character, Damien Karras, there's some confusion for the audience as it switches back and forth between their appearances. And it could have been explained better with more cutting, showing George C. Scott being kind of stunned that he looks different. If that's if it's happening, if it's something that he's actually seeing rather than something just the audience is seeing. But we'll never know because the director, Blatty, couldn't even do that because he didn't want to cut away from Dourif's monologue. He, he kept the camera fixed on Brad, rightfully so, which meant he had to give up a little on explaining how two people are in one body, which makes the movie a little more confusing. But the camera was just hypnotized by Brad Dourif's performance. 
the absolute horrifyingly creepy sensation that comes when the people working with George C. Scott's character, the the detective Kinderman, are reporting to him what the Gemini killer has been doing. And that slow reveal of the details in like almost whispered, this is hard to say, maybe humans shouldn't even be hearing things this level of evil detail. You know, there was recently a thread on Twitter, fuck calling this thing X, and it was it was really interesting. It was a question posed by someone that said, what is the evilest movie you've ever seen? And there were quite a few interesting answers. The The Vanishing came up a lot as a movie that just felt really evil. But Exorcist 3 has a touch of that. The moments where George C. Scott is describing to his priest friend what the crimes he's been investigating and the level of detail of it is you watch his friend's face literally go ashen, go almost white. And that happens a lot in this film. So one way it's special is it's in terms of words, using words as description in a, in a usually visual medium. This movie is almost second to none. The next thing that's really special here is just the integrity with which this thing was made. There was a lot of pressure from the studios on Blatty to make a direct sequel to The Exorcist, to, to bring, you know, Regan McGill's character back, to, um, to not ignore the first film. And he absolutely refused. He said Regan's character was unnecessary to the sequel he, because the to him, the whole point of The Exorcist, the point of the possession of Linda Blair in The Exorcist wasn't to destroy her. It was to attack and destroy the people around her. Sure, she was under attack, but it the, the demon's plan wasn't just to like bring down one helpless little girl. It was to sow chaos and despair in ever-widening circles around the girl, like throwing an evil rock into a lake and having the ripple effect go out and ruin lives. So in Blatty's mind, that process could be done to anyone. So her character wasn't necessary to what he was trying to get across. The book Legion that Exorcist 3 is based on is a really thoughtful examination and as with the first Exorcist, a surprising amount of like the mystery genre, the tactics and tropes of the mystery or whodunit uh, branch of filmmaking. That's what Blatty wanted for Exorcist 3. So one, no return of a beloved character like Reagan. Two, no exorcism. <laughs> In his original conception for this, there is no actual exorcism, which the studios absolutely refused to let go forward. They didn't really interfere with Blatty when he made the movie, but when he turned in his first cut, they freaked out. There's a there's a story that when they when the studio screened it, when the executives were watching it, when they finished, a secretary looked really disappointed and they just gave her the space to speak. They were like you know, to tell us what you think. And she literally goes, what the hell does this movie have to do with The Exorcist? 
So the studio got spooked that they had a disaster on their hands. They authorized another, I think, nine, ten million dollars to go shoot an, an ending that added an exorcism to it. So one, Blatty wanted to make a movie that wasn't a direct sequel to his the first hit. Two, he wanted to not have an exorcism. And three, he recast one of horror's most iconic characters, Damian Karras, with Brad Dourif. All of these things are just insanely brave. And Blatty was so confident in Brad Dourif's talents that he didn't even feel like he was taking that big a risk. He, he actually thought that once Brad Dourif's character got to speak on screen, it, his, the, the power of his performance would just sweep away the audience's resistance. When they first shot Exorcist 3, they were using just Brad Dourif. Um, they, Blatty wanted Jason Miller to come back and do the character at first. And they used a euphemism. They said that he couldn't do it to a scheduling conflict. But that was just a kind way to cover for the fact that Jason Miller had become a very severe alcoholic at that point and just couldn't have sustained a performance across a whole movie, especially a movie this grim and hard to shoot. And they literally couldn't remember the lines because there were so many delays and reshoots and they were reshooting the whole ending. He actually rallied and recovered enough where he could come in and be in the movie. And Blatty literally guided his performance line by line so that the memorization thing wouldn't be an issue. And those one-on-one scenes between both Jason Miller and in, in his ravaged glory here and Brad Dourif giving... I mean, I don't think, honestly, there's a better performance in a horror film. There's lots of, not lots, but there's quite a few equal. But I, I'm not sure anyone has done better than what he was bringing to this movie. You know, a lot of the iconic lines from horror movies, like Groovy or Welcome to Prime Time, Bitch, or You're Gonna Need a Bigger Boat, these movie, these lines have like uh, humor in them. They're even in moments that are scary. There's a there's a zest to them. There's a fun. There are so many quotable lines from Brad Dourif's monologues in here, but they are midnight dark. You'd have to have the devil's heart to find any humor in these, but they're still so quotable. The You're is- issuing an invitation to the clear invitation to the dance line. And then my personal favorite, right after George C. Scott strikes Brad Dourif in what is essentially a hero spawned jump scare. <laughs> like George C. Scott comes out of nowhere, at least in the, in the version I watched. All of a sudden, he's just there hitting him really hard. He breaks his nose, actually. And Brad Dourif's response is just this utterly chilling, oh, a few boos from the gallery, I see. Just remarkable, remarkable stuff. And then there's George C. Scott himself, and this is another thing that I think is really special about Exorcist Three, is that Blatty made the main hero completely nuts. This is like Anthony Hopkins' Van Helsing in Bram Stoker's Dracula levels of crazy, if not more. This is a detective running around quoting Shakespeare, having weird mistimed outbursts. 
openly crying in front of his staff, making weirdo moves like when they're dusting a crime scene for fingerprints in a in a in a church, a horrific killing scene in there. He the the person who's doing the dusting for fingerprints doesn't understand why they're dusting where they are. And George C. Scott is like, I'm padding the job like completely inappropriate. He goes from almost whisper, quiet, low grumble to the absolutely roaring like a lion. And then his completely unhinged pay on to the devil at the end where he's the, the I believe in pain. I believe in slime. I believe in death thing is just off kilter and maybe you need that maybe you need that to beat the devil i mean all the priests in exorcist 3 are either completely ineffectual or they're killed this is a great thing i saw pointed out in a book that is magnificent that just came out by nat segaloff called uh, the exorcist 50 years of fear i think is the title and he said not just that the priests in exorcist 3 fail but the devil is defeated by George C. Scott, who in real life was an atheist. But there's a ruthlessness he brings to the Kinderman character that gives me um, chills in a good way, especially at the end in one of my absolute favorite moments when um, Jason Miller manages to just blurt, just get out, just get the devil fought off the possession, um, put on timeout just for a second to call out to his old friend, George C. Scott, and say, kill me or shoot me. I forget exactly how he phrases it. And George C. Scott does it immediately. You know how when you're watching a horror movie, like one great example of this is The Shining, when Danny comes back out from the maze after he's tricked his father and his father's trapped in there, and Wendy's running towards him and they reunite at the snowcat, I've seen so many people watching that movie who have a level of anxiety that Jack Nicholson is coming back out of that maze and they're yelling at the screen. They're yelling, you don't have time to hug. You don't have time to wait. Get in this, get out, get in the snowcat, go. But horror movie characters do that all the time. They hesitate, they pause, they, they say, they take time to like say goodbye or give themselves like a, a final, you know, message or whatever. None of that for Kinderman here. None, none, none of like something he wants to say to his old friend. No, he just executes him immediately on command. So Exorcist 3 is an absolutely devastatingly scary movie. It's a it's got a terrifying opening. It's got frightening dream sequences. It's got a truly sad, slightly hopeful close. It has some of the scariest performances ever put on screen. It's not perfect, but I think it's the best part three in this genre. Now, the winner for the best fourth entry in a horror franchise was Friday the 13th, the final chapter. The only movies that came really close to it were Halloween 4, Return of Michael Myers, A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master, Bride of Chucky, and then a little further back in the voting, Scream 4, which surprised me a little bit, but... Um, it might have been my pick. I have an inordinate love for Scream 4. Scream's not my... I love the Scream franchise, but it's there are a lot of other franchises that I feel like hit closer to like my heart. But even though I know Scream 4 isn't the best of the franchise, 
I feel like it's probably my favorite. But like I said, I don't really have strong that strong of feelings about it either way. Also, technically, Land of the Dead, which we just talked about on this podcast recently, would be another one that I would throw up there that got no votes. And I didn't do any voting for the community past the position four. But we do have some picks from Aaron and Hillary at Manic Movie Monday. So let's hear that and we'll talk about it on the other side. Hi, George from Horror Weekly. This is Aaron and Hillary from Manic Movie Monday. And we understand that you would like us to weigh in on sequels for four, five, six, not seven, and number eight. So I'm going to turn it on over to Hillary. So initially when Aaron tests me with the sequel gathering and she told uh, told me, you know, the numbers and the very first thought we both had was Friday the 13th part four. Uh, Corey Feldman, lots of boobs. And we were like, oh, this is relatively going to be rather simple. And then Jennifer Tilly enters the chat. Yes. So Jennifer Tilly's turn as Tiffany in Bride of Chucky actually swayed us to choose for number four, Bride of Chucky. Now, number five. So once we had four of Bride of Chucky, number five, we had a few in the running. But what wind up winning for me was Hellraiser 5 Inferno. Uh, Craig Schaefer, and I love his whole take on that he's a detective like looking for a missing kid but he's horrible in every other aspect of his life (laughs) we do love me some craig shaver and i just i love the i'm just because i'm doing a good thing doesn't mean i'm a good person i love that in like the protagonist antagonist you know dichotomy lots of big words for you guys (laughs) (laughs) i'm not i'm not sure who i'm recording with today actually (laughs) I brought my A-game today. And yeah, just, you know, Pinhead creates his own version of hell where everybody in his life, you know, just keeps dying. At Spoiler alert, end of the movie, Craig Schaefer kills himself and it just starts all over again and you just never escape, you know. Which is fantastic in my opinion. Yeah. Um, so six, we were kind of, t- I was kind of torn with this one. Like I wanted to kind of do Saw 6. Uh, because I love a movie where, you know, a health insurance company is taken down. However, I was really thinking about it. And the six that I feel just captures horror and, and makes me, you know, feel all good is Jason Lives. I absolutely love this movie. It has a universal horror element to it with, you know, Jason getting electrocuted by lightning and then come to life. Um, it's got tons of genre references in it it's uh it's it's an interesting movie it's funny it has places that it's funny I think CJ Graham did an amazing job as Jason in that one and it's it's one of those movies I can put that on pretty much any time and just and just like chill because it's a because Jason Lives is a really good movie I feel like um Tom McLaughlin did a great job with it and uh yeah this is nothing in my opinion nothing bad and it has a fabulous theme song by alice cooper he's back man behind the mask uh written by desmond child great 
fucking horror soundtrack. So, and then we had to find an eight, and this is oh, eight was rough. So initially, when we thought about eight, uh, first thing that comes to mind when we do when we think about series, I always think about Halloween. I because the original was so great, and I'm a Michael Myers groupie. So I was like Halloween eight. Oh, the one with Buster Rhymes. Okay. Trick or treat, motherfucker. <laughs> So, okay, we're not going to do that one. Uh, Then we tried to watch Witchcraft Part 8. And if you haven't been turned on to this gem of a series. Oh, my God. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Witchcraft Part 8 is is horrible. And, And I don't mean like so bad it's good type horrible. I mean just really, really horrible. And not even appealing on like a Skinamax kind of way. It's just a terrible movie. And if you're looking for a terrible movie, because I don't know, maybe you're masochistic. Maybe you want the feeling of getting dental work done on a Monday. Uh, This is it. Witchcraft Part 8. That's your movie. Go ahead. Manja. But thankfully, we have Hillary. Hillary did the she really did the heavy lifting with this whole project and she found a number eight so uh for me after yeah countless eights texas chainsaw massacre eight god awful um so then we went to saw eight jigsaw and i rewatched it again last night because all the saws do kind of like bleed together for me and I got to say, I watched it again, and what I really dug was the way that it's shot is they have, you know, John Kramer, you know, Jigsaw, he's back from the dead again. And I'm like, listen, th- we really don't have an eight as we're watching this, because I totally forgot. <laughs> and even, even, like, we even thought about, like, we thought about Jason Takes Vancouver. I'm sorry. I mean, Manhattan, in quotes. Uh, and even that was just like, no, we can't do that to this audience. No, Puppet Master 15 or 8, uh, Children of the Corn 8, like, but. They're all bad, George. Oh, yeah. Uh, so any franchises out there, really step up your game for 8s. Uh, but yeah, no, it wasn't that John Kramer was, you know, back from the dead. It was, you know, the way that it was shot. It was two different times. And I was like, oh, and then I really didn't know who, you know, the person working with Jigsaw was until the very last like shot, which was very reminiscent of that original Saw when, you know, Tobin Bell stands up from the floor and the way my jaw dropped when I first saw that. I was like, well done. Nod to one. You win. Jigsaw in at number eight. Fantastic. George, we also want to thank you collectively for being so supportive of our podcast. Thank you, George! For all of the, for the shout outs you've given us and just for the the personal support you've given us has been so wonderful. So we thank you from Manic Movie Monday and stay stay manic. Okay, that was amazing. Thank you, Manic Movie Monday, for covering all the picks that I was too lazy to get to. (laughs) I have Man in the Mask stuck in my head now. Thanks. I went and looked up Dichotomy. I like it. And there's some things to discuss here. So Hellraiser 5, interesting. I remember I liked it. I hadn't seen it in a while. I also read an incredible book 
on the Hellraiser series called like Hellraiser Films and Their Legacy, something like that. And it really increased my respect for the whole franchise. Just the way watching Never Sleep Again increased my respect for the Elm Street franchise. And the Hellraiser franchise is not perfect, and there are bad films in there. But I wouldn't be mad if I was movie marathoning and had to watch that whole franchise. I think it would be a lot more fun than I remember. And I also think that it deserves a little bit of a reappraisal for quality, not just Hellraiser 5, but also particularly Bloodline and Debtor, which I really like a lot for some reason. And then, of course, the modern reboot, which is also really good. Again, at least to me. At six, I'm going to stay manic and go with their pick, Jason Lives. Oh, oops, I got to backtrack a second because I forgot Final Destination 5 in the five picks because I think that should definitely be in the conversation. We know I have New Nightmare at seven. The only other one that really jumps out to me there is uh, Halloween H2O. And then I think Hillary and Aaron are right. I think eight is like the Bermuda Triangle of the numerical sequence. It seems to be a cursed zone where it's very hard to make a decent movie. Now, this is interesting because although I did not ask the community to vote on any of the higher picks, I did do the original post that inspired this whole episode where I said, is there is New Nightmare the best movie this far down in the numerical sequence? And I caught hell for it from a big contingent of people for ignoring Halloween 2018, which is 11 movies deep into that franchise. If you're counting the Rob Zombie ones, I know it's the Halloween franchise, so it's going to be confusing. But either way, it's pretty deep into the franchise. And if you consider that movie really good or even a masterpiece, which I don't, I thought it was a lot of fun on any given day. I'm not sure if I like that one a little better than H2O, H2O or the other way. But anyway, I knew there were a lot of people out there in the community fighting for this one. So that deserves a mention. Plus, in the same post, um, someone was arguing for Prey. I always forget about the Predator franchise when we're talking about horror, but that would be a really solid number five pick as well if you consider it horror. Now, I do want to say something real quick about kind of the structure of this podcast and the, the best and the underrated and that kind of thing, right? Like, because we're interacting with the community because we're doing a lot of voting together we're thinking this podcast through together all of you and me we we do a lot of these like list things and here's the thing right i did a post recently that said prince of darkness is a top three john carpenter movie and someone responded that you know it you're saying it like it's a fact, but it's actually your opinion. Well, obviously, I mean, that's assumed when the page posts something, uh, even if it says it as a fact, it's still just an opinion, just one person doing it. But the point is, when we say things are like the best or great or top or whatever, to me anyway, the way I'm doing it is that's the opening of a discussion, not the end of it. I want to hear other people's bests. I want to hear if they're different and what the reason is for why they're different. I want to be convinced, as the X-Files says, I want to believe. 
And that's how the pages under Horror Weekly's banner operate as well. So if you're listening to this episode, you're like, oh, I totally disagree with the picks for four or which was the best six or whatever. Or, you know, I love Jason Takes Manhattan. That's great. We want to have that conversation. One thing we're never going to do here is just say things by fiat like it just is. We're always going to give reasons and we're always going to be open minded if better reasons come along. One of the reasons I love Prince of Darkness and may do a full episode on it someday is that it's a unique kind of scary. It's it's different. It's like when you hear those rumors about how they come up with like a pure color, like the deepest black, a black you can't even see. I think it was called Vanta Black back in the day. Who knows what they've invented now? And I was always skeptical when I would read something like that. And then they would show an image of it. I'm like, oh, that is different. That's not how I picture black in my head. That's something else. Lots of horror movies are scary, but Prince of Darkness is scary in a unique way. But the point is, I've come to value that more as I got older. Prince of Darkness wasn't in my top three John Carpenter movies long ago. It's gotten there now because we stay open-minded, right? So don't worry if some disagreements happen. I actually love those. That's way less boring than just agreeing with all the picks. Bring the reasons and let's have a conversation and then just let's keep loving this genre that's so special to all of us. And I just know, because this happens every week, because um, the people who follow the Horror Weekly pages are so knowledgeable about horror that there are movies that we just plain missed. (laughs) Um, So if you have movies that you just can't believe weren't mentioned or you have movies way down in the count that are like masterpieces somewhere in the Godzilla franchise or whatever didn't come up here, um, feel free to message the Horror Weekly Facebook page or um, leave a comment on threads or bring it up in the Horror Weekly Facebook group as an original post of your own. And if I see it, I will definitely respond to it. Um, the, The place I won't miss it is the subscriber group. So... I've talked about this a couple times now. We have set up a subscriber group for people who want to support this so that I can spend more time doing it, add things to it, bring guests to the podcast. As you can imagine, counting up all the votes and following all the comments is pretty time consuming, even though I love it. Don't get me wrong. That's kind of the point, actually, is I love it and I want to do more of it, which means pulling time away from job. So we set the price of the subscriber group on Facebook is the lowest possible Facebook setting, which is $2.99 per month. The good news is you enter the group and then if you feel like leaving the group because you just want to give a little support, it just cancels automatically. It's not one of those fucking things that's going to just keep charging you and charging you like a subscription that you forgot about. You're not going to forget you're in a Facebook group. So just um, come if you love it. Great. Stay. It's the easiest and most direct way to have conversations with me, give me ideas for future podcasts, give me feedback on past past podcasts, just, you know, say shit you love about horror movies or books or TV shows or art or whatever you're into. Like I said before, because the page has more than half a million followers, I unfortunately miss a lot of messages and comments as hard as I try to see them all. There's just the volume is too great. 
So if you think this thing is something that deserves a little support and you want to help it grow, um, that uh, going into the subscriber group, I'll put a link in the show notes um, so you can go directly to it and just see what it's all about. Um, that and um, giving reviews is the best way to support. And speaking of support, I saw we didn't unfortunately gain any subscribers in the last couple weeks, but we did get reviews on Apple, which is getting us close to that 4.8 rating so that we even out with our Spotify rating, which would be just so exciting for me. So huge thank you to Minosa Mom and Fox 70 for leaving reviews on Apple and to everybody else who's trying to push us up there. I see you all. Thank you so much for the help. And I think that's it. I, I don't think I could talk any more uh, horror on this episode. We blitzed through so many movies. There was like math involved. I feel like I took a horror SAT. I feel like I was at a horror feast and I'm full. So we're getting out of here. Thank you again to Manic Movie Monday. And until next Wednesday, have a great horror week.